Feels like we just got here yesterday, doesn't it? Oh, wait, we did. In some ways, it feels like we've been here forever. 24 hours of fun, adventures at camp. Are you guys having fun yet? Enjoying the day? Good. Great place. Well, as we are journeying through the book of Romans, I want to invite you again to turn there with me. Romans chapter 4. Uh, we're going to pick up and we're going to do a little bit more rock skipping than scuba diving this time, but we're going to move through uh, chapter 4 and then uh, on into chapter 5 as well. And just by way of reminder for all of us, what we have seen so far is we started last night, we saw the black felt, right? We saw the dark condition that all of mankind is in, separated from God. But fortunately, we have a loving and good and gracious God that provided a way back to him through the person of his son, Jesus Christ. That righteousness that we could not have on our own was actually provided for us because of the goodness of our God. And that righteousness was provided through the means of Jesus Christ, God's only son. We talked about that this morning. And as Paul continues now in chapter four, he's going to unpack that a little bit more. And he's going to say, because God did everything, because you did nothing, you have something that this world does not offer. You have something called security. In the midst of chaos that we deal with all around us every day in life, Paul's going to say, God's got you. He is secure, and you can lean fully into him. Uh, when I was in college, I had the opportunity to go to Oklahoma, and I went with our college group. We went rappelling. Has anyone ever been rappelling before? It's terrifying. Don't ever do it, right? Here's how rappelling works, okay? Somebody stands up here on the edge of a cliff, and they have a harness on with the rope. And then you get to the edge of about a 100-foot cliff, and you look over, right? And then you grab the rope that they're attached to, and they just say, lean back. Trust me. I've got you. It's the most terrifying thing I've ever done in my life because you were literally putting all of your trust in this person. And I watched person after person kind of lean over that cliff. And if something happens, there's a hundred foot drop, they're surely going to die. And as it finally became my turn and I watched all these people do it, I was terrified. I so wanted to do it. But that step of faith that it took to step out to that edge and lean back into that rope was just the hardest thing ever. And I clammed up, my hands were sweaty, and I could not do it. And finally, the guy that was repelling me or belaying me off this cliff looked at me in the eyes. He said, Mike, listen to me. I've got you. Trust me. Lean back. I will not let you fall. And in that moment, I just put my trust in that rope and this guy's voice, and I leaned back. And sure enough, he held me all the way down that mountain cliff. In a way, what we're about to look at, chapters 4 and 5 of Romans, are Paul saying just that. God's got you. You are safe and you are secure because you did nothing to earn your salvation. There is nothing you can do to lose what you did not earn and which you did not deserve. It is a beautiful picture. In chapter four, what Paul's going to do is use two illustrations. One guy we just got through singing about, Abraham. He, by the way, is the most significant human being outside of Jesus Christ to ever walk this planet. There are actually three faiths that identify Abraham as their uh, their father, Christians, as you know, Jews, as well as Muslims. He is a very significant individual. The second illustration that, eight, or that uh, Paul rather is going to use to demonstrate the security that we have in Christ is a guy by the name of David, King David that we've heard about. So as you turn now to Romans chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, let's look at this idea of security and who we are in Christ. Romans chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, read them with me. Paul says this, what then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, discovered in this matter? 
If in fact Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. We've come off this section where we're just talking about salvation being granted, and Paul hypothetically asks, hey, what about Abraham? Was his process to coming to God somehow different than yours and I? Because if, if he earned his way there, unlike you and me, then he can boast, right? He can brag about his relationship with God and all that he did to get there. So Paul asked this hypothetical question, right? Can Abraham boast in his relationship because of something that he brought in and of himself? But in verse 3, Paul proves that he didn't boast in justification by works by taking us to the scriptures. And he quotes here now Genesis chapter 15, which is right in the midst of Abraham's story. It says this, For what does scripture say? Romans chapter 4 verse 3. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Ooh, did you guys see that new word? I'm a word nerd if you haven't figured that out, by the way. Paul just introduced to us a new word concerning how all the benefits of Christ are actually applied to our lives. He says they are credited to us. That's actually a, a bookkeeper's term. Here's how it works. Just the mechanical act, by the way, of faith is not what saves you. It doesn't change you. Behind the faith that you and I profess, there has to be an act by which God takes from one account and puts into another. Abraham believes or has faith, and then what God does is credits or literally reckons, that's the word that we get imputed from as well, into Abraham's account. Abraham believed what God promised, just like you and I. On the basis of Abraham's belief or trust, God imputes or credits righteousness to his account. Now, you may not understand the fullness of all of that, but I promise you on a day-to-day -day basis, you completely get this. I mentioned to you guys the first night that I have three daughters. Uh, my middle daughter just finished her freshman year of college. And every now and again, my daughter Callie would call me. I'm the fix-it guy in the house, right? So if her car won't start or something's wrong, I get the phone call. Uh, my wife gets the, hey, I love you and I miss you phone calls. I don't get those from Callie. So she calls me and she says, hey, dad, dad, I love you so much. You're so special to me. And I'm like, okay, something's up. What's going on? And she says, dad, hey, uh, there's a little bit more month than I have money. I've kind of run out. I am out of cash. And I still need to eat. I still need to pay my bills. Can you help me? You know what I did? I got on my phone, got on my app, and I took the hard currency that I earned from working my job, that money that over blood, sweat, and tears that I had earned, and I took what was in my account, and I imputed it into hers. I transferred dollars into her bank account, and the bank subtracted them from my account and added them to hers, and it was like it was really there for her. She could go to Subway and eat lunch because that money was true and it was good. That's the idea of what imputation is. Crediting, it is both judicious and realistic, meaning it's taking from one person's account and applying it to the other so they can act upon it as if it was theirs. And that's exactly what my daughter did. And that's exactly what God says happened to Abraham. How was Abraham saved? By works or by faith? The scripture says, by faith, and the rest of chapter 4 proves that, and then credited to his account was righteousness because of that. He was declared righteous by God, not by any work that he ever did, even years afterwards, all the things he did, and walking with obedience to God, all of those things occurred long after God in Genesis 15 declared Abraham as righteous, and credited righteousness 
to his account. So Abraham has something to put into his account that was not there, right? He had faith that was applied to his account, but that's only one aspect of imputation. There's another side of this same coin, and Paul now uses the example of David to show us that. Look at verses 6 through 8 with me of Romans chapter 4. Just as David also speaks of the blessing on the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Verse 7, blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin uh, the Lord will not take into account. Now, what's the difference between Abraham and David? Abraham had something put into his account that was not there. Faith, credit to him as righteousness. David, according to Paul, had something taken out of his account that was there. What do you know, by the way, about King David? As you think about David, probably the first thing that comes to mind is like David and Goliath and maybe this king that we've heard about. Did you know David was also an adulterer and a murderer? This, this text right here is actually taken from this account immediately following this sin that David commits. And it says that he rejoices because he is blessed, not because he is good, but because God does not reckon the sin which was in his account, but rather forgives him. In other words, how was David saved? He was saved by faith as well. So you're telling me, not only is God able to put into our accounts what we cannot earn, i.e. righteousness, but he is also able to take out of our accounts that which is already there that would keep us from him, i.e. sin? Paul says, yes. And his examples of that are Abraham and David to show us that is exactly how salvation has always worked with Abraham, with David, and with us today. You see, Abraham is a picture of grace. He got what he did not deserve. David is a picture of mercy. He didn't get what he did deserve because of his sin. Two pictures of imputation. One thing going into an account and something else coming out. This is the idea of what it means to have righteousness credited to one's account. And I want you to skip all the way down to the end of chapter uh, 4 to verse 23 through 25. And I want to show you why these stories are here. It says now in verse 23, not only for his sake, speaking of Abraham, was it written that it was credited to him, but for our sake also, to whom it will be credited, and to those who believe in him who raised Jesus uh, our Lord from the dead, he who was delivered over because of our transgressions and was raised because of our justification. So according to Paul, why are those two examples there? Why do they exist? Paul says they are for our sake, to be encouraged by and learn from that. There are two things that ultimately would keep us from heaven, our presence of sin and our lack of righteousness. And I want you to notice because of this text exactly what Christ did for us. He took away our sin through his death as the perfect substitute that laid down his life. And he gave us righteousness through his resurrection, imputing what he had on our behalf. Friends, do you see how this idea should change our view of God? I want you to think about something for a second. As a believer, I imagine something is true of you because it's true of me. When I sin, when I struggle with my sin, is I continue to walk out this thing called salvation and understand and 
assimilate the gospel into my life every day. This thing that didn't just save me, but it makes me more like Jesus every day of my life. That's what it's supposed to do. But when I, when I sin, there's something that happens within my heart. There's a, um, there is a conviction of that sin that leads me back to the Lord to confess and to repent. But what I had the tendency to do in my life, and my guess is that you had the tendency to do it in yours, is to allow that sin maybe to linger in your life, where you don't move just to conviction and repentance and let it go, but maybe you have a tendency like me to feel shame or to feel guilt or to carry that with you. When I was camping in um, elementary school with my parents, my dog got into a basket chasing after a skunk, and that dog sprayed my or the skunk sprayed my dog in the face, right? It was a horrible episode. Uh, there was the immediate pain uh, of what happened in that moment, but then there was the remnant and the rest of everything that was going on with that dog and the stench that covered my Labrador for weeks after the event. Sometimes we allow sin to do that in our life, to linger and to hang on. What this text is showing us is what God has actually done just like I put money into my daughter's account that was actually there, God actually removed sin from our account. And for a God who has known us from eternity past, who knows every decision we have made, every thought, every motive, everything that we're going to do today, and everything we're going to do tomorrow, our sin included, it says that he, through the person of his son, died for that sin. That sin was removed from your account and from my account as well. So I want you to think about that for just a second and the implications that has on our lives. Do you see correctly how God sees you? There's a conviction that's good that would lead us back to him, but we're not to sit here and linger in this idea of sin and feel a a sense of shame or guilt over it. That is gone. And this picture is here so that you and I can rightly see who he is. So if you find yourself lingering in that, you need to know that we serve a God who knows us fully, who accepts us fully, and loves us fully. Despite all of our inadequacies, he laid down the life of his son for us. Now, from this point forward, as we move into chapter five, Paul's going to talk about the results of justification, the results of being declared righteous. Remember that judicial term that we used this morning, to be declared righteous, specifically regarding our security and what the security, as God has that rope and he's got us in our lives, what that means for us. And I want you to notice three things, beginning here in Romans chapter five, verse one, that this security brings. Look, Romans chapter five, verse one. He says, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, did you notice a verb tense change in chapter five, verse one? Therefore, having been justified. We're talking past tense at this point. At this point in the letter, Paul's assuming something, that you have heard the gospel, that you have understood your need for it, and you have put your faith in Jesus Christ as a result of that. At this point, if you're continuing to read in Romans and you haven't done that yet, You're basically reading somebody else's mail. Paul assumes that you are saved. But do you see what comes as a result of us putting our faith in Christ? Do you see that word that starts with a P? What is it? Peace. We have peace. What is peace defined? It is the absence of something, the absence of war, 
War is no longer happening. I want you to think about this for a second. Prior to Christ's death and resurrection, God, in a sense, was our greatest enemy. We'll see that more in even chapter 5. But now we have peace with him. What else, by the way, do we have with, through, uh, through this faith? Look at verse 2. Through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. Paul says we've gained an introduction or access that I am able to boldly, in a sense, come through the front door. The book of Hebrews says that we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus. I love how he calls this new state of ours an introduction. We are tasting in Christ only the beginning of what's to come. And you'll notice what he calls that introduction here. We have a stance in grace. Friends, can you stand in quick stand? No, you can only stand on something solid. And because God is secure, because he has us, Paul is saying you can stand boldly. You can stand securely, knowing that our heavenly father, he has this. Prior to Christ, that wasn't the case. But now we have peace and we have security in him. And in verse, the end of verse two, what else do we have? We exult in hope of the glory of God. Friends, we have hope. Now, when I say hope, I don't mean worldly hope. Hey, I hope that your team wins wreck. Hey, I hope the Cowboys win the Super Bowl. That will never happen. Uh, I hope they do. I have one fan over here. I saw your shirt. Represent. You're right. I know. It breaks my heart every year. It's not the Cowboys. But we're not talking about that type of hope. That, that hope is like, ah, it may happen. It probably won't happen, but it may. When the Bible talks about hope, it's not this wishy-washy hope. It's this idea of it will happen. It is a divine hope. It is assured that it will take place. It isn't a maybe. It's a done deal. So this is an expectation of the day when we will be in God's presence, knowing that we'll have his approval and his acceptance into his kingdom. This is our hope. So in verse 1, we rejoice in a past act that purchased our peace and security. In verse 2, we rejoice in a future day when we will very surely, definitely stand in his presence before the very glory of God. But in verse 3, what is it here in the present tense that we can rejoice in when it happens? This is odd. Look at verse 3. And not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance. We exalt in our tribulations, present tribulations. Now you may say, why would we rejoice in that? Tribulations aren't a good thing. Those are difficult things. Nobody wishes for tribulation or difficulty in their life. Why would Paul say this at this point? If you think about the original readers of this letter, the Roman Christians, they were suffering under immense persecution from Nero and the other um, Roman leaders of the day. They were they were up to their eyeballs in persecution. And the normative response for many Christians when it comes to this idea of, of tribulation or difficulty or personal tragedy or persecution, whatever it may be, is that things are going wrong in my life, so God must not love me. He must not care about me. Something must be awry in my life because these things are happening. And Paul says that that's actually, that's nonsense. He's going to say at the end of verse 3, no way. In fact, He'll say they actually prove that you and I belong to him. Look at the end of verse three. Knowing that tribulation 
brings about perseverance. What is it in tribulations make us do? They make us persevere. It's literally the ability to stand underneath pressure, trusting him to bring you through. Friends, as you think about maybe this in your life, have any of you had stuff maybe thrown at you in your life that maybe just gets dumped on you? Do you feel like maybe like the world is falling apart around you? Maybe you came from a, a difficult home environment down the hill. Maybe you have profound sense of loneliness in your life right now. You don't have the friends that you wish you had. Things don't feel like they're going the right way. Maybe you're dealing with anxiety or depression like so many in our world are dealing with right now. What you do in the midst of this, according to Paul, is that you don't cut and run. You don't tap out. You remain. And the reason that you remain through these difficult times in our lives is because God is with you. Paul states this, by the way, as a fact. A true believer is going to make it through. And God is using these trials, these difficulties in our life as a test. If you look here in verse 4, what does this perseverance prove in you? He says in verse 4, in perseverance, proven character, in proven character, hope. That word proven character literally means proof. Perseverance brings proof in our life that we are his. How can you tell a real Christian? In Matthew 13, it says, when the persecution arose because of the word, immediately they fell away. When, when did ultimately Judas show his hand that he was going to betray Jesus? As soon as it became clear that Jesus was going to be arrested, Judas said, I'm out. Are you a Christian because you got baptized? Are you a Christian because you can recite the gospel? Are you a Christian because you walked an aisle, maybe even a place like this, or rose a hand? Maybe. But you know what one of the most clear indicators are? That someone is a believer. Some of the external signs that they are indeed. Fire. Difficulty difficult things happening in their life, when things heat up, will they run and scatter or will they allow those trials to strengthen them and grow them within them? Those trials in time will make you look more like Jesus. And at the end of verse four, I want you to notice what this yields in you. Hope. There is that word again, this experiential security. We have security because in verses one and two, we have faith. But in verse four, we also have security because of a changed life, because of endurance through the valley, because we are clinging on to him, like me repelling and falling off the edge of a cliff. We are holding on to him in the midst of difficulty. We are trusting in his provision for us, no matter how difficult it may be. You show that you're a Christian in a sense, not just in a point in time where you walked an aisle, but you show that you're a Christian by a life lived over time, both the highs and the lows of life. Some of the most mature Christians that I know are the people that have been through the most difficulty in their life. These things proved them, pushed their faith, and made them more like their Savior. You've heard maybe the old adage, why does God give dogs fleas? To remind them that they're dogs. In a sense, it's the same with trials. Why does God allow trials to happen in our lives? To remind us that we have a profound sense of need for him. We need to cling in those moments of difficulty. Paul says, no, on the contrary, God has put those trials in your life for a divine reason. They are purposeful. And this hope in verse five will result in a changed and persevering life. And that hope will not let you down. Look at verse five. 
That hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit that was given to us. That word for disappoint means to put to shame. It's a term used in the Bible for someone who would turn to an idol that would ultimately only disappoint them. In the end, you're gonna go back into captivity. Our hope in God does not do that. It does not disappoint, meaning that we'll not end up trusting in him just to have him let us down. He will not fail us and somehow lose us. So friends, can you lose your salvation? In other words, can hope ever disappoint? No, because at the end of verse five, the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. At the end of time, will he let you down? Why? No, we know he won't because God loves us. And how do we know this? Because he has given us a down payment, a deposit. The third person of the Trinity, the very Holy Spirit himself exists and lives within every one of us who have professed Christ as their Lord and Savior. Do you know that? That God in you sealed you with the Holy Spirit. How much of the Holy Spirit, by the way, did he give you according to this verse? It says he poured him out. That's the promise that comes from Joel chapter two. It literally means to empty. He gave you all of him. You got it all at salvation. Friends, the point of this verse is this. If God has given you his very spirit to live within you as an assurance and as a seal, if he has poured out his spirit to you, do you think that he will ever drop the ball with the promise of heaven? No way. He will be faithful then, and he will be faithful now. Now, in verse 6, I want you to notice how it begins. You'll see the word, at least in my Bible, that says for. That's an explanation. Paul's now going to explain this idea that if God will do all this for you, do you think that he will come through for you in the end? This is how much he loves you to save you and secure you. And Paul goes on here in verse 6 through verse 8. For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though for perhaps for a good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us. And while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The verse that we memorized yesterday. These three verses... Are, are proof of verse five, how much he loves you. The fact that God loves us, not while we're righteous, not even while we're good. Even a person would have difficulty laying down their lives for someone like that. He calls us two things in verse six, helpless and ungodly. And he says, even that being our estate, even knowing that in verse 10, he says, we were actually enemies of God. Christ was laid down on our behalf. And in verse 7, this move of love is logical. It's not, it's not just normative. It's, it's beyond that. You can't compare it or comprehend it to anything. If I asked one of you right now, would you lay your life down for your very best friend? You may in nobility say, oh, yeah, I would. But if push came to shove, would you? It would take a lot. It would be asking a ton. I hope you would. But to think about that, that that's a high ask. When God laid his life down for us, we weren't his friends. The text says we were his enemies. And in that state, knowing that, he laid down his life for us anyway. But in verse 8, notice this. Verse 8 begins with but. It's a contrast. It's completely distinct. It's totally different than any other type of love that we've ever seen. He is demonstrating his own love through his son to demonstrate how significant what he did on our behalf was. The thought is this. Friends, if God loved you, 
while you were helpless, while you were ungodly, while you were a sinner, to give you Jesus Christ, if he loves you that much as a non-Christian, and in verse 10, even as an enemy, how does he feel towards you now that you're his? He says in verse 10, so much more. Having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. In other words, if he loves you as an enemy, do you think he will ever drop the ball on you as a son or a daughter? You have been reconciled. You have been changed back as if sin was never even present in your life. And his life is what seals the deal. And as we land the plane here in verse 11, he says, not only this, but we also exalt in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we now have received the reconciliation. You guys remember the story of the prodigal son? It's told in Luke chapter 15, the son that goes back, takes his father's inheritance before he is dead, wishes his father dead, and comes back ultimately broken back to his father. And when the father receives him back, he gives him some gifts, a ring, a robe, sandals for his feet, a fatted calf, and throws him a party. But do you know what the son rejoiced in? More than all of those things that the father gave him, do you know what his ultimate joy was? It was actually the presence of his father, being reunited with the one who loves him. The point of verse 11, as a saved person, we don't merely have what the Father gives. We have him, his very presence. Of all the gifts that we get, salvation in heaven, the greatest gift that you and I get is God. I want you to think about this as we conclude. In chapter four, we saw imputation lived out. Abraham gave God, or sorry, God gave Abraham righteousness. In David, we saw God ultimately take unrighteousness away. And in so doing, God did what we could not do for ourselves. That picture was true of these men, and it's true of us as well. In chapter 5, God fully knew us when he did that. God didn't send Jesus to save righteous people or even good people. Jesus died for us while we were yet enemies. And God knew everything about us, past, present, and future all the dumb decisions that we would make, all the missteps, all the times that we would walk outside of his will, every decision that you and I would ever make, and every time we would rebel and walk away or reject him or turn to idols, and yet he loves us anyway. Friends, have you ever been in a relationship like this where you are fully known, you are fully accepted, and fully loved? This is mind-blowing to me. I know of no earthly relationship that compared to this. I've been married now for 23 years, and I love my bride. And she knows me like no other on this planet. But she doesn't know me like the Father knows me. And despite all of those things, knowing the wickedness that even still today dwells in my heart, my God loves me. He knows all of that, fully accepts who I am, and I am fully loved. Friends, the picture that I want you to leave with is that is true of you as well. I don't know what your sin struggles are. I don't know what your habits are or your hangups or the things that you wrestle with maybe on a day-to-day basis as a believer, just like I do. We'll talk more about that tomorrow in the days to come. But what I want you to hear is this. You are secure. God loves you in your present condition. The things that you wrestle with in your mind, the things that you wrestle with in your heart, the times that you even walk away from him, he loves you. You are secure in him if you are in Jesus Christ.
there's an assurance of that. So I want to invite the worship team to come back on stage. And I want to take that idea into worship. Friends, you have a rope that you can hang on to that's been offered to you by the Father because of His Son. And that rope makes you secure. He's got you. He will not let you fall. So as we continue now to sing and to worship and to remind ourselves who we are positionally in Christ, let's acknowledge that. Let's celebrate the fact that we serve a God who loves us unconditionally.